0: Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Neil Zacharias, co-founder and editor-in-chief of independent publishing platform One Green Planet in New York. After more than a decade working in the digital media space at companies including Yahoo, DoubleClick, which was acquired by Google, PricewaterhouseCoopers Advisory, And as an attorney specialising in privacy and intellectual property law, Neil decided to take his passion for the environment into building a purpose-driven media company. Since its inception in 2013, One Green Planet has become one of the fastest-growing media outlets in the food sustainability space. With a team of just two people at the beginning, within just a year of its launch, its audience of largely millennials had grown from 300,000 to 3 million. It currently stands at more than 6 million and the company now employs a team of staff in a dedicated office. Interestingly, despite the liberal use of the term vegan in its content, the majority of One Green Planet's audience are not vegan. In April 2016, One Green Planet launched Food Monster, the biggest vegan recipe app, containing more than 5,000 recipes, with new ones added each day. Nil oversees strategy, editorial and social media at the company, and also writes about sustainable business trends. In this interview, he discusses the two key things an independent publishing platform that's short on money and resources needs to focus on to be successful, how narrowing down your focus and demographic helps you build a larger audience, why he decided not to go down the route of seeking external investors and how this has helped the brand grow, The one strategy that's essential to getting your content shared as widely as possible. Why it's wise not to talk too much publicly about your idea before you've built something, especially if you don't yet know what your product or story is. The importance of measuring the impact of the content you put out and adjusting your strategy accordingly, and much more. Here's the interview with Neil Zacharias from One Green Planet. Hello, Neil, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell me, first of all, Neil, why did you launch One Green Planet? What's your reason for doing this?
1: Um, You know, I think a few years ago, um, I woke up to the fact that uh, my everyday choices were responsible for um, the ecological, the environmental crisis that we're facing. Um, And what surprised me about it was that I lived most of my life largely oblivious or most likely, I think, apathetic to the idea that uh, I had any role to play in it. And I think the problem wasn't that I didn't recognize that the food system we have is broken, um, but I didn't feel like I had the power to solve it. And I, my, my first instinct was the more I learned about it, I wanted to do something about it. Um, and what I also recognize is that we live in an age where information is abundant and uh, attention is scarce. Uh, And I think as a result of that, most of the important issues and facts related to the predicament that we're facing as a species of the planet or even animals tend to get lost or drowned in the media noise. And and my goal was really with One Green Planet to create a a purpose-driven media company that would slice through that noise and really be a catalyst for change. So our goal was simple. We wanted to create and inspire a movement that would lead people to make everyday choices that have... The maximum positive benefit for them, and potentially the mac the minimum negative impact on the planet. And by the, the way, we went about doing it was to shift the conversation away from all the problems, whether whether it was um, the cruelty in animal agriculture or the impact on various industries on the environment, but actually focus on solutions and try to be uh, an empowering media platform that could shape consumer choices and hopefully grow this new conscious. Um, economy of companies creating better products, whether food or otherwise. Um, And eventually, one of my goals is to really influence and shape policies, because that's usually the last thing that changes.
0: Wow, that, that's brilliant. And that's actually one of the things that I really love about One Green Planet is that it is so positive. Um, and you're right, there probably was quite a dearth of, um, of media or blogs or of content that, that took that approach. Okay. So I, I really love that about, about what you do. <clears throat> Why did you decide to go with a media company?
1: Uh, Well, largely because of my background. I mean, I spent um, most of my 12 plus year career in digital media. Uh, Although I did start off as my career as as a lawyer, as an intellectual property lawyer for a couple of years. um, I moved into uh, the digital media space. I worked for a company called uh, DoubleClick, which was one of the pioneers in digital advertising acquired by Google. I spent a few years in a big consulting firm advising media and technology companies. And then I spent five years at Yahoo where I held um, a range of business and policy roles. So my background really is digital media, publication, pu- publishing, online mm-hmm. advertising. Um, and I spent, I think, most of my career um, sort of promoting, helping uh, using the power of digital media to reach people and change their minds on issues that I re- really didn't care too much about. Um, and my goal with One Green Planet was to take all that experience and skills and apply it to something that I, uh, I truly believe needed to happen. Uh, we needed a, a, a positive, empowering force um, that could reach, reach the maximum amount of people using every, um, every trick, creative, tool that that is available in the online media space and i think that's really at the heart of why i chose media
0: Fantastic. That's wonderful. So, talking about media, so the media. I mean, my background is journalism. I've been a journalist for about seventeen years. So, I've watched, you know, with interest all the the big changes that are happening in the media landscape, mm-hmm. uh, and it's still obviously, you know, changing as well. So, obviously, one of the key challenges for publishers of all kinds, whether it's online magazines, digital magazines, print, or you know, even bloggers or, or podcasters, one of the, the main challenges is to make their businesses financially viable and profitable. Now, obviously, one Green Planet, you've got massive audience and seen obviously a lot of success in a short space of time can you tell me a little bit about or as, long, as much as you feel comfortable in sharing the kind of strategies that you use to make this happen
1: yeah i mean one of the we are not a typical media startup i mean we um, want, we knew that inherently when we started off that we were purpose driven which is one would say inherently restrictive um, and we are vertically focused on you know environmental animal issues as it and with food at the forefront of all of it uh, so some of these could be looked at as challenges but really we looked at it as a real opportunity um, while we may lack the resources and we always have lack the resources in the scale of uh, established media companies um, I think we make up for that by by we, we'd really try to make up for that by being hyper-targeted in the type of content that we created and also in terms of the audience that we curated. Um, and by that, I don't mean we were trying to narrow our focus and only reach a niche sort of sub-segment of the market, but our goal was quite simple, and, and it's really a two-pronged approach. One is, uh, and that's what worked for us, and I can't say it will work for everyone, but we firstly focused on quality content. Um, I was, you know, Our goal was always create the best possible product that people will love, whether it's presenting vegan recipes, only showcase the best ones, uh, or writing stories about animals in the environment, only pick ones that will resonate with readers. So I'm literally obsessed with the idea of understanding how people consume media and respond to it and interact with it. And we use that that information to kind of fuel the ideas that we come up with, but the underlying focus that everything must be of really the highest quality, where if someone comes across their feed on social media or wherever they consume information, they see us versus um, a, a large publisher that's been around for ages or a celebrity that they follow on social media, and we are equally engaging and empowering and entertaining as any one of them. The only difference is we have an underlying message and a purpose behind everything that we do. So quality was really, really important for us, at the, you know, as one of the big, big prongs for our uh, monetization strategy, and that's just you know the baseline. We have to have quality content. We're a media company. The second part really is the audience and and curating a passionate you know user base. I think we've learned a lot from our readers, and in the beginning, our focus was just try to reach. As many engaged, passionate, loyal people as we could. Um, also, try to understand what they want. Read every comment that anyone makes on the site or on our social media feeds. Uh, understand what inspires them, what drives them, what makes them mad, what makes them happy, and kind of use that to um, to really present them the information and actionable content that would would kind of make them, would build their trust in our brand. And I think that's been our key focus of the last three years is create an audience base that trusts us, relies on us and our editorial voice, recognizes that we are sort of a neutral force, but yet we are biased for a purpose. Uh, We're neutral across the issues and across organizations that we support, but we're biased in the sense that we fight for a cause. and I think, as a result of that, really coming to the monetization part, is that we've been able to organically create a user base that is inherently more valuable to advertisers. Because they, you know, our monetization strategy is pretty simple. We have um, our we have hyper targeted consumers who come to our site who really want to discover products. They want to discover new things that they can buy. They want to learn about campaigns and issues that they can support. And our goal is pretty simple. They stay on our site for a long time. They're very loyal. They're very dedicated. And that is very attractive to any advertiser that's trying to reach their target audience. So for us, it's kind of synergistic. Even advertising on our site, and when we work with advertisers in the space, it is, um, we're helping them reach exactly who they need to reach. And, And that's only because we've been, we've narrowed our focus down to Pulling in certain users who want that. And I think that's been the heart of what we do is quality content, curating a group of passionate users, and of course, finding a way to to, to tap into what um, what advertisers would want from them. And I think really that's at the heart of what we do. The, the, the mechanics of it can be very complicated, but, um, but the real strategy reasoning behind it is, is as simple as that.
0: For sure. And it's good. I'm glad that you shared that, because it's interesting with the whole, you know, advertising thing, you know, advertisers can be a bit reluctant, you know, to advertise, say, banner ads and things like this, because, you know, they're, they're not quite sure. But obviously, I think what you've said about building that trust, and obviously, the, the, the quality, as well as the, um, uh, you know, the high quality audience as well is, is, is really important. Now, you obviously, I mean, I see some articles that are shared, I mean, a lot of your articles get shared, you know, thousands of times, you've obviously got to really big audience and you've got a really big audience in quite a short space of time. How did you go about that and what tips could you offer, say, you know, other content providers, bloggers, for example, of how to, uh, you know, to get uh, those numbers and to get a loyal uh, audience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the big things we focused on initially is to try to develop a very unique and original voice. I mean, there's really... um, there's really no secret sauce except that you have to do things that are different and do it differently. And I think especially because there's too much there's too much noise out there as I mentioned earlier in the media. Space. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like everyone's sort of saying the same thing. Um, so uh, you know trying to find out one is that what is what is that unique thing that you can offer whether it is focusing maybe only on healthy food or maybe your thing is fashion or maybe it's one specific animal environmental issue and really kind of diving deeper into that and and kind of hopefully finding an audience base that kind of resonates with that issue rather than trying to do it all and initially you may want to try a few different things to see what sticks and what you really are good at and what the readers really resonate with so um, I think that's the, the heart of it and I think we spent the first year I think narrowing down our focus more than expanding it. We try to do a bunch of different things. Even within the environmental and animal space, you can be talking about a range of issues. And we still do, but we we know which ones are the most impactful. And we we do a lot of uh, analysis of what works and what doesn't, like any media company does. Uh, The difference being is we analyze our success based on the impact we're making uh, versus just pure numbers because it's going to give us more ad revenue. So...
0: Right, um, right. I
1: think that's the one tip I would say is try to find an original voice and something that that someone is really good at versus versus trying to do what everyone seems to be doing.
0: Yeah, no, it's really, really good advice, actually, about the whole niching thing. And I know I've done that myself before and i had an online like social justice magazine and it was so broad and it had all these categories and it was just kind of too unwieldy so i I appreciate what you're saying about yeah really kind of zoning in um and also i understand you've you've expanded into apps as well you just recently launched the the new app so is that another way for you to reach the same audience or reach different audience and also to add monetization to to your business
1: yeah i mean one of our see the last three years we've been really laser-focused on uh, creating a company, a media company that captures the largest segment of consciously-minded um, readers, largely millennials, young people ages 22 to 35. That's our core audience um, And our goal has really been to develop and help them change their habits and uh, create a real trusted web presence and a real diehard following that keeps coming back and keeps expanding at the same time. Um, our move into apps is sort of a natural progression. We've created, um, uh, we started focusing on food very early on. One of our co-underlying goals was that to connect the impact that food has on the environment. And when I say the environment, I think of it in really broader terms than just uh, climate change. I think, of, I think of the ecosystems that make up our environment, and it includes the animals and the impact that we're having on on, on species, whether wild or otherwise, um, and our goal was quite simple: make that connection and empower people to change their habits. And so we started focusing on vegan recipes really early on, and and building a real a blogger community and a curate and a and a archive of of amazing vegan recipes to the point where we three years in had five thousand plus vegan recipes and were the biggest vegan recipe site on the internet. Um, and I think mobile was sort of the next. Obvious step to go into because um, people are using, you know, um, half our readers are coming through mobile phones, and uh, most of them, most people are using uh, smartphones in the kitchen when they're cooking. Um, And we wanted to create something that they could easily access and uh, sort through recipes and find it. So it was a a tool to further empower our existing user base, but also potentially, obviously, reach a whole new world of of, of users who otherwise may have not discovered us. so, the app's the big recent thing we launched in April. It has um, now nearly six thousand recipes, um twelve plus recipes added daily. That's about three thousand new recipes added every year. So <laughs> our goal is really to be the biggest it, it is the biggest vegan recipe app that exists. Um and of course, from a monetization perspective, we um the difference with the app is it's you get a lot of free recipes, but if you want to access the entire, archive and access all our premium features. There's a subscription model. It kind of works like a magazine. You can subscribe monthly or annually. And um, so that's a new way for us to reach users and and also, you know, find branch out beyond just uh, advertising as revenue sources.
0: Fantastic. That's wonderful. And people have no excuse now. <laughs> There's no way they can turn around and go, but I don't know what to eat. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And also to present vegan food as something that is just, you know, great food. And that's always been our focus. It isn't just, it, it, it's to, and majority of our readers are not vegan. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Because, really?
0: That's interesting. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. What, ha, what What's the kind of approximate numbers there? Well, then? more than
1: 90% of our readers, because we reach over 6 million users a month, um, wow. majority of them are not vegan. And we know that based on emails, we get comments based on, uh, feedback we've gotten. Um, and I think that's because of the approach we've always taken is to try to create, make this food, make this way of, um, uh, uh, make conscious choices accessible to everyone. And, and that's our goal. It's always been that way. And people come, um, because people are generally consuming less meat and looking for healthier, more sustainable, or, um, you you know, compassionate options and um, they find that in our site whether it's our recipes or it's the articles that we write Um, so that's really been our approach is try to reach more people because that's the way we're going to make an impact I mean my goal isn't to to create a community over here as much as it is to start a movement, <laughs> to get more people absolutely. to join in.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I didn't realize that it was that, that amount, that the majority of our readers would, would be non-vegan. That's brilliant. That, that's absolutely. So while we're on that subject then, in terms of marketing and the use of the word vegan, because, you know, there's, there's different schools of thought that, oh, you know, using the word vegan, even though it's become a bit more popular, it's still going to scare people off, and maybe we should use plant-based, and, you know, there's different schools of thought. What are your thoughts, and And can you explain either the use of the word vegan, how prominently you use it or not in your marketing materials?
1: Yeah, I think we're, you know, firstly, we don't think of ourselves as a vegan business per se, because we aren't selling a vegan product. Um, You know, our goal is broader. Our goal is to get people to rethink their daily choices and to help a new industry rise that's that's enabling this change. And the forefront of that new industry is, of course, the plant-based food space. You um, so know, I think the way I think of this, I, I think if if anyone's interested in making choices or creating products that, as I said earlier, have maximum benefit and minimum impact, I think in this day and age, in 2016 and beyond, you will inherently have to make them free of animal ingredients uh, or materials. It's it's more sustainable. It's more aligned with I think most people's values. Um, I just think it's common sense. It's the right thing to do. We can call it vegan. We can call it good or better for you products, call it planet-friendly or eco-friendly, whatever we may please. Um, I think people get too attached to the label than to the underlying ideas behind it. Well, with that being said, we use the word vegan and we are not afraid to use it. So we use it all the time when it comes to food. I think it's the most accurate and commonly understood word to describe our food content. Um, so whether it's um, our recipe section or our food monster, or our recipe app, it has the word vegan, vegan all over it, and we don't shy away from it. I think people understand it, especially younger people. And I don't think they're scared of it. I think they have less preconceived notions of it that are negative. Um, and I'm, I'm, we, 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 we talk to kids, and we understand. We see the feedback they send us, and, and for them, it's normal. This is, this is just the right thing to do, and that's the way they approach it. Um, that's
0: really good to hear, and that's a good point actually that you've made about different audiences and knowing your audience. And you obviously know your audience very well. And in that, you're right—the younger people and the millennials—they they haven't got all that baggage around exactly. um, the word vegan. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out.
1: Yeah, they don't think. I mean, they don't come with these preconceived notions that if if you say the word vegan, you're either you're either a vegan anarchist or you are a tree hugger and <laughs> there's no in between I think they're in between they're normal functioning <laughs> they're, they, they, they just want to do the right thing they've inherited the problems that their parents have largely created and they want to focus on the answers and the solutions and and to them, you know, vegan food is one of them eating less meat just makes sense um, and, you know, we believe that vegan food is amazing and everyone should be eating this way the, but, but at the same time we don't tell people to go vegan and, and I'm going to explain that. And I think it's very important to understand that. I think we tell people to eat consciously. We tell people to buy consciously. We tell them to avoid materials and ingredients that are derived from animals and are inherently cl- cruel and unsustainable. Um, we uh, we also do a lot of animal and environmental content. So we, we don't feature animals in zoos, no matter how cute the video is. If you do feature a video, we are usually critical of it. Um, so we tell people to not support Um, Entertain animal entertainment facilities that can find animals in um, unnatural surroundings. Um, We tell them to adopt pets, not shop for them. But we also tell them things like use less plastic and buy less stuff. And, you know, just think about your needs versus your wants. And and some of this goes beyond just the impact on animals. And that's why I think our thinking is a little broader. Um, And the way we think of it, our reader base, and we always approach it this way, whoever comes to our site through whatever means that they may find some of our content, they may want to do some of it, or they may want to choose to do all of it. And I think really the choice is is up to them, and they may choose to call it whatever they want to call it. Um, Our goal is really to, you know, I'm more interested in the underlying ideas and the reasons why people choose things versus telling them to follow some sort of a code on how to live ethically or sustainably. Um, we want to give people the information, we want to empower them with the solutions and let them decide how far they want to go. I think that's better than people doing nothing, which seems to have been the case for many years.
0: Got it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So let's go back to the beginning a little bit. What was some of the When you were first starting out <clears throat> with One Green Planet, what were some of your challenges then and how have they changed as you've grown?
1: Yeah, so sort of the challenges in the beginning was uh, very, very simple. Lack of resources and uh, only having 24 hours to do 1,000 things. Um, <laughs> and partly the reason for that is because we did not take any external investment. We chose not to, um, which was a bold slash stupid move, you could say, but uh, it worked <laughs> out for us. Um, and, and the reason for why we didn't do it was because we considered it. I mean, I worked in the digital media space for for big companies. And and that was definitely one of the options we considered. Um, And when we sat down to think about it, we thought, well, we could spend three to six months trying to raise money and convince investors, um, all kinds of investors, that we are trying to create a media company to redefine green and to disrupt the food system. And perhaps some of them would be interested in it, um, or many of them probably would be interested in it. Or we could just go ahead and try to build this and prove that it could be done. Um, so obviously we chose the latter. We, we, we felt, you know, it would allow us to do it in a way that we truly wanted to do it that would be authentic um, without compromising, without being told you need to focus on X versus Y because that would monetize quicker or help us scale quicker. Um, and it, it helped us kind of have that complete independence and be very kind of... Um, laser focused right from the beginning saying we're going to create an environmentally focused site that's going to have vegan food at the heart of it. And we're going to not hold back. We're going to tell people, you know, you may choose to eat this way once a week or once a day or, um, or, you know, a few times a month. Um, but it's the right thing to do and you need to acknowledge that. And we're going to stay focused on that. We aren't going to soft pedal on the issue. We're going to say here are the facts. Here's the answer. You decide what you want to do with that, and I a lot of some of the I felt having too many people help us decide our editorial voice would have kind of watered down some of that initial focus that we had so yes, that was one of the reasons we didn't take investment, and we decided to kind of build it on our own. but as a result of it, we had very less resources and a very lean budget um, and and that was undoubtedly very challenging in the beginning the The way we kind of overcame that. Um, it was interesting we got really creative <laughs> that's the that's the <laughs> answer we always knew we just didn't want to be a blog we wanted to be a real company we wanted to we wanted to scale we wanted to hire people we wanted to start to um, make large-scale impact so really if i break it down it's three things that we did in the beginning one was hard work we worked 18 hour days and we still kind of continue to do that um, that's that's been at the heart of what we do we just we work harder, faster, better, uh, and, and that, that kind of makes up for some of the things we don't have. Secondly, I think we, I came in with a lot of a, with an attitude that was very focused on I can just do this myself. And we did a lot of, uh, whether it was writing articles, doing social media, making new relationships, I just put in a lot of time myself um, to get that done. Ideally, I would have loved to have an editorial team that I could have hired right in the beginning and have a team of in-house writers. But of course, we could not do that in the beginning. So we we started curating a blogger community. We hired, uh, we got a few freelance writers on board. And I spent a bulk of my time trying to maintain our editorial voice and control to make sure that even if we didn't have a core in-house editorial team, we were still consistent in our messaging. And we were consistent in our, editorial strategy and we weren't saying conflicting things. And the first year was really a lot of that, trying to figure out what is our real voice? What is our focus? What is our message? What is our story? Um, And that really helped. And I think the last thing really was being, the third prong was being very organized and disciplined. I think as creative and scrappy as we were in the beginning, um, we were always very planned, very measured, very organized, always had project plans, tracking goals, milestones, Progress reports. I think a lot of that comes from my twelve plus years your year career in the in the corporate world, where I worked in everything from consulting to big technology and media companies, and we kind of brought in that discipline of you know we may be small and at one point we were just two people, um, but we're going to run this like it is um, it is a it is a professional, real, uh, well oiled machine, and I think that kind of helped us stay on course and um, see what was working and stick with that. And things that weren't, we just gave it up along the way.
0: That's fantastic. It's very inspiring because, I mean, you've essentially, I think the buzzword is disruption. It sounds like, you know, coming into, you know, creating a new media outlet when so many media are closing down, so many mainstream, you know, large media are closing down. It is pretty cool. Um, So it's very inspiring and very, very helpful advice there um, as well. So then as you grew then, Mm -hmm. you know, as you say, you reached, I think you mentioned, what, six million people or, you know, a huge audience. How did you go from that, um, from, you know, two people to where you are now with, with a large team and, and, and how did those challenges change as you got there?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's evolved over, over time and still sort of stays the same. Uh, (laughs) We still don't have enough resources and not enough time. I mean, that hasn't gone away. We still have (laughs) those two things as a challenge. And I think now the biggest issue now is really prioritizing and optimizing the use of our team's time. Um, We are obviously, you know, making revenue and, um, and we have tons of ideas. The question now is, what do we focus on? What do we prioritize? Where do we allocate our resources in a, in a meaningful way where we can make the most amount of impact? Um, that's that's very important because we've gone in a span of uh, three years from a completely remote operation where we, you know, we had folks in our team that were initially just freelancers, eventually part of our team that were in different parts of the country. We still have freelancers all over the world. Um, That was 2013 and 2014, which eventually grew into us deciding we needed to establish a team in New York. And in 2015, last year, we moved into a co-working space and we started hiring people locally and said we really needed to set our roots here and and establish something for the long term. And that's evolved now this year where we finally moved into our own office space um, and we're developing our own culture. So it's a lot of things have happened. And of course, our audience has grown with this. Um, back in 2013, we were reaching about 300,000 people. A year in, it was already 3 million, and now it's six. Um, and it's it's been fast, and I think with that comes a whole set of new challenges. Those are whether it's hiring people, uh, retaining staff, um, the technolo- technological challenges of scaling up to, to deal with hun- millions of users versus what we had in the beginning, um, and then kind of all the complexities that go into balancing the, um, the editorial side of things with uh, the monetization and the technology component because after all you know to keep a site with such high traffic running is, is, is quite a quite a tough task at times um, but you know the challenges are part of the fun I think and I, and I think it's it's always something new and and I, I think I've learned to accept that I don't know everything and we'll have to figure out things along the way. Um, and that keeps it interesting. And we're always eye on the future. We don't, we can't, we don't settle for this. And we're really looking forward, even with the app and some new initiatives that we're launching, we we want to see how far we can take this. And that's what keeps it really exciting and makes the challenges sort of part of the the journey, really.
0: That's making me excited as you're saying that. I can feel your passion coming through all the way from New York. It's awesome. <laughs> so, let's talk about. Let's talk about some of the marketing strategies that you've used to, in order to, you know, to get so many people on board and aware of your brand. What, what were some of the key um, strategies that you used that were most successful?
1: Yeah, I mean, our goal. Uh, the difference here is because we were um, a media platform and we are creating content. Our our goal was quite simple, we let the content speak for itself and we didn't do any marketing. Uh, honestly, for the first few years and I think until very recently, we were just heads down in our laptops trying to build this, trying to get it as as big as it possibly could um, to a point where we were, you know, my head was slightly above water and I could start to focus on, you know, things like marketing and, and PR. Um, so, Honestly, I can't really tell you if we used any marketing strategies. The things that we did really were use the power of social media, um, engaging content, and um, and distribution um, to to reach the most amount of people. So that's the key things that we've done. We've dabbled a little bit in um, in uh, public relations and outreach with the launch of our recipe app now, um, and we plan to do more of that with some of the new initiatives going forward. But it's really, I think, we're now at the phase where And the reason for this is I'm a firm believer, don't talk too much before you've actually built something. And I think that's a mistake a lot of um, uh, businesses tend to do. And when they don't really know what their product is, what is their story, what it is that you're actually offering. um, And it doesn't work for everything. For some products, you do need to create buzz. In our case, we just needed to reach people. And the way to reach people was to create compelling, interesting, impactful um, content. And I think that's been our biggest marketing tool so far
0: uh, and did you how did you reach them though because obviously you can create content but then you've got to attract people to or you've got to let people know that the content's there so was it purely social media that you you got it out
1: initially it was largely social media I would say uh, social media building relationships we work with almost every um, nonprofit in the environmental and animal space building communities of bloggers um, like our recipe blogger community and um, which, you know, the more people you get involved, while, while, one, while one Green Planet is, is one company and is, is a fairly lean team, what makes it be is this distributed ecosystem of uh, people that exist out there uh, everything from our freelancers to folks within our blogger community to every nonprofit that we work with. We sort of started to become their extended their extended media and communication platform because we kept growing we kept picking the most impactful stories we kept helping their campaigns reach more people and as a result of it we kept growing ourselves so it's a very oh, synergistic kind of um you know we a lot of
0: collaboration exactly I'm i
1: mean i think that's yeah. been our approach is that we we we, we went we, we were a new kind of activism platform we were you know we're not a animal or environmental nonprofit where we're, we always said we're a media platform we're a media startup but we're focused on a cause and we're focused on furthering that cause and we work with everyone in the space to to use our skills which is creating really compelling impactful viral content and mix that with whatever campaigns everyone's doing whether it's sea shepherd to uh um to an end to greenpeace to whichever environmental organization that may exist out there, and amplify their message and help them reach people. And do the same for recipe bloggers and uh, folks within the vegan food community as well. And um, that kind of enabled us to, to kind of create this, this extended sort of ecosystem that really fueled our growth. Um, so really, I think that's, that's been one of the things we've done.
0: Mm, brilliant! No, I like that. I'm really loving that, that that collaboration aspect of it. That that really that makes sense now because I must. admit, I was curious. I'm kind of like, how could you grow from you know a two people team to like three hundred thousand, three million, six million, you know, without having a massive marketing budget? So, but it makes sense that you know you use social media along with making these collaborations. That does make a lot of sense. So and thank I, you for sharing. Yeah, that. and I think
1: <laughs> that's more. And our goal was always to do. You know, of course, initially we thought, should we spend on Facebook advertising? Should we, and we didn't have those kind of budgets to even do that. So we had to be very creative and really, and I think the advantage of being that way is that we built really an organic user base. And our user base is people who are fans of ours on Facebook, which is almost nearly about a million users now. Yeah. um, (laughs) And other social platforms just came there because they like The content, Um, and they they stayed because they they found it interesting and they shared it and more people found it, Um, and that you know one could say that is a longer road to growth. But to me, back to what I said earlier, it was about curating the right kind of audience because I'd rather find one targeted user who really cares about this stuff and really wants to discover the things that we're talking about or learn about the brands we speak of, um, rather than just reaching a mass of users and just slapping 10 ads on a page so that we can make money out of it. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. So that would be I think that makes what we really trying to, to
1: do. We want to make an impact. We just don't want to be any other media company.
0: Exactly, because there's a lot of people out that kind of, you know, it seems like everyone's kind of a content creator, but it makes a real difference when you actually take the time to create really good, high-quality content um, rather than you say just kind of throwing anything up there just to, to make money and I think you're a really brilliant example of of doing that. So it's very inspiring. I'm, I'm loving hearing this story. <laughs> this is great. Um, so Neil for those of people who they aspire to, to run an ethical business, a vegan run business, but at the moment they're still employed, what advice would you give uh, to them or what are you, in your opinion are the key things they need to take into account before making the jump from employed to to self-employed?
1: Yeah, great question. I think, you know, I think it's really like any other business. The same rules apply. Um, but if you do want to succeed in a business by offering um, a vegan product or service uh, or whatever it may be, uh, I think the important thing to consider is to try and create something vegan that isn't just for vegans, um, but for everyone. Um, so make something that Everyone will want, and of course, people who are vegan will want it too. That's at the heart of it. And I think it applies if you're creating an eco-friendly product or a better-for-you product or a healthy product. Firstly, create something that is of value that's going to reach, that's going to be attractive to a lot of people. And I think by doing so, you are truly helping the cause. And I think this applies to a food product. It applies to clothing. It applies to if you're writing articles or creating art or whatever it may be. The first, I think the important rule is figure out what it is that you can create a value um, that also happens to be inherently better for animals in the planet. Those are the things that really have the greatest chance of success. Um, because if you're, otherwise you can say, I want to follow my passion and do this, but you will end up struggling to find that that. Consumers, the, the consumers. You're going to struggle to find that user base that really resonates with this and you're going to struggle to grow. Um, and I think the good part is we're finally at a time where more people want to eat this way. They want to buy better. They want to make more conscious choices. And I think our goals really need to be to create something that's um, that's firstly a good product and also happens to be Good for animals in the planet, and hopefully that resonates with a lot of people. That would be the first thing to do. And of course, if you're going from self, if you're going from employed to self-employed, you, you you've got to make sure you have planned it, plotted out what you you're going to do, thought down, thought really about the execution steps before you start and go ahead and do it. Because um, the last thing you want is to merely have an idea. Um, and go with that because, you know, ideas are all around. Ideas are nothing without a plan to to go ahead and do it. And lastly, a plan is useless without really making a list of things to do and then just getting it done. Um, and I think those are the three. you have the idea, make a plan, make a list, and just get it done. And I think if you follow the simple rules, you can kind of do anything, And if, especially if you're creating something of value
0: yeah that's very, very good advice, actually. In terms of funding then, now every every business, even an online one has some startup costs. And I know you mentioned you mm-hmm. chose not to have an external um, investors. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the methods then you used to get started if you feel comfortable um sharing that and that you found to work well as a, as a startup?
1: Um, I think it worked for us because of the nature of our business is our startup costs are, were very low. And I think we kept them low. We could have, of course. I mean, there are companies that are, media companies that are smaller than us, significantly smaller than us, that have blown through four or five million dollars in a year or two. So, of course, more money you can use. But, um, you know, I think we put very little money into it. We put our own, own money into it in the beginning. We got very creative. It's sort of the same things I mentioned earlier. We were very selective on how we spent our money. Um, We were very measured. We tried to not do too much. Um, And I think the best part about uh, being a media business is you can actually kind of do that. It takes longer. You have to be very creative in terms of not just where you allocate your resources and your time, but also in terms of um, what you're going to put out there. Um, and, And you have to be able to measure the impact of anything you're putting out there. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. So... So this, I, I guess the short answer is um, is we, we really used very little and we got very smart with how we used our money and we got smart in terms of how we used our time. So for example, if we spent 15, 20 minutes on an article and the article had X impact in terms of number of shares, the number of readers reached, uh, we would automatically start adjusting the focus and the length or the depth of the articles going forward to make sure that we were optimizing the time used versus the impact that it was going to make. And that sort of stays with us right now. There are things we do and which sometimes new employees come on board and are shocked at how fast we do it, but we've almost boiled it down to to a bit of a science and a formula about here's what we need to do within the given time that we have to have the maximum impact. So it's really using time and, and money very, very carefully. Um, mm. Is our So I know it's not a fundraising strategy, but it's really how to use the money that you have, whether it's, Million, so it's even, you know, a few thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, no, that's actually really good advice about being very, very efficient with, with your money. Um, and it's interesting because kind of, I guess, because you've got such a, like you say, you've got a, a bloggers from all across the world. You've got a lot of freelancers. And I'm, I'm curious how you manage that. Like, look, we're having so many people and kind of, uh, you know, that can work up. That can be quite expensive. Like if you've got a whole bunch of freelancers, even just like paying writers. So how does that kind of work? Is it that they, they want to be involved with One Green Planet because you know, they can use it for this, their resume or to, to raise their exposure? How does it kind of work? Like, how, how do the, the writers benefit as well? And, and and as well as you being able to still maintain, uh, you know, a cost effective strategy?
1: Yeah, and I think increasingly, as we've grown, one of the things we've done is, of course, we've hired more people in house, and we rely less and less on um, on on freelancers. But <clears throat> the thing with freelancers for us is, is again because of the nature of what we do um, and the c- type of content that we were focused on. We were one of the first sites to really to really dive deep into uh, animal issues, to really talk about everything from factory farming to uh, conservation to animal testing, and we didn't hold back, is we were finally giving a lot of people who really wanted to have their voice heard an opportunity. So most most writers approached us um, and people would be more than happy to write for us even if we weren't paying them, um, but we did. And I think the, the reason for that is I think we think we're in a space where people do this because they have a passion for it. They want to make an impact. They want to use writing as a tool, their words and their voice as a tool to reach people and hopefully empower and inspire them to do something. And I think we gave them that platform and that goes for... Freelance writers that goes for this recipe community that we've we've built. We found these. You know, we didn't go after big established bloggers. We wanted to discover hidden talent, people that had small blogs that were creating really, you know, homemade, groundbreaking f- vegan food that the world really needed to see. And we amplified that message and we gave them a platform to reach more people. So. I think by the nature of what we do and the the fact that we're focused on on empowering people to make conscious choices um, attracted like-minded people. And I don't think any other media company can probably say that Um, because um, our writers, our readers are all inherently very passionate and kind of loyal fans of what we do. So it makes things a lot easier for us
0: for sure for sure thank you for sharing that so final couple of questions they're around kind of mindset so a lot of business owners say that owning and running a business it's the fastest form and effective form of personal development because it forces you out of your comfort zone um and so what qualities what personal qualities do you believe are essential to staying the course and running a successful business
1: yeah i think first and foremost you have to be um, self-assured you have to believe in yourself um especially if you're trying to do something that's um that that has an underlying cause or purpose, or um, you know, it's driven by some sort of need for for activism or making a difference. Um, because unless you completely believe in yourself, no one else is going to. A lot of people thought I was crazy to quit a very successful career um, <laughs> and 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 kind of pursue something like that. Um, and I think they've come to understand over the years the kind of impact that we're having, but if you doubt yourself that you're gonna just sort of, you're gonna go into whatever you choose to do with that kind of doubt, and and it eventually doesn't lead to anything good. So self-belief is important, but while that's important, secondly, I think you have to recognize that it's not going to be easy. Um, And I think once you recognize that, and, and you recognize that you will probably have more problems than solutions, or time that you can even solve all those problems, you will realize that that's actually a good thing. And you have to get used to that uncertainty of not having all the answers and having more things you haven't figured out um, and kind of being okay with having to learn along the way. Um, because if you go in, you know, self-belief is one thing, but if you go in thinking you know everything, you're probably going to fail. Um, so that's to me the second most important thing that the, the, in terms of mindset. And I think thirdly, and I may have said this I may have alluded this to this earlier, but creating something of value that people want is very, very important. And I think the example I give a lot is the is the Tesla approach. Um, Tesla is such a successful car, um, and it's and everyone seems to be talking about it over here. I don't know how big it is in Australia, but it is.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think first and foremost, it's because it is an amazing car. It also happens to be an electric car that's great for the environment. But first and foremost, it stacks up as a car, and that's why people want it. And I think that mindset is very important, going in as, um, and creating a, a product that you know, is supposed to be inherently ethical or good or sustainable, uh, is first create something that's, that's of tremendous value, that's, that matches or exceeds um, the quality of, of comparable products that may not have that underlying value or ethic. Um, And I think that's what leads to success in the space. And we're starting to see that in the food space as well, is people want to try um, plant-based milk. So they want to try meat alternatives because they just taste taste great. And they are kind of healthy and great for you. Um, They just also happen to (laughs) obviously not contain any animal ingredients and are better for the environment. And I think that quality-first, value-first approach is is what will... um, will kind of make you realize what 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 you shouldn't be focusing on as well.
0: Perfect. That's wonderful advice. I really appreciate that myself as well. Um what specific steps or strategies or techniques have you used or do you use to ensure a strong mental and emotional well-being as a business owner especially as you mentioned you work really really long hours and I get that. Do you do any kind of I don't know meditation, coaching, self-help yoga, anything like that?
1: Um, well, I don't. I, I don't need much to disconnect. <laughs> I like to spend time with my dog. I'm lucky. I can bring her
0: Aww.
1: to the to the office. We have a, a beautiful new office space that we moved into. It's dog friendly. It's in a neighborhood that has a lot of really good vegan restaurants, um, and it's 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 great. So I do. I I, try to, I don't get that much free time, but when I do, I like to read. I do try to meditate, but it's mostly I try to focus on doing things with some sort of intention, even if it's something mundane. And I think it sort of helps sort of center you and um, and makes you, because you have to keep that that enthusiasm and stay fresh. I wake up every day really excited to do what I do. And um, even if it's after a very few hours of sleep, um, it's to try and find those small pockets. I don't need too much downtime, but when I do get it, it is I, I make the best of it. And I think that's very important, especially Given, I mentioned, you would tend to deal with more problems than solutions at any given day. It's it's important <laughs> to find that space.
0: Absolutely. What have been the key lessons you've learned through running One Green Planet?
1: Um, you know, I think I, my goals with One Green Planet initially were pretty simple. I wanted to do great work that makes an impact and do it with people that I like to be around. Um, and I think over the last three years, I think I've learned that, um, And I and I've said this, I think I've learned to accept that there's more I don't know that I know. Uh, I've learned to accept that I will make mistakes. Um, that's a key lesson. That things always don't happen how and when I expect them to. And um, most importantly, I have i think I've learned is that giving up is really not an option, is to, if things don't work, to improvise, to keep fighting, to eventually try and be persistent, and, and it eventually leads to me getting there. And I think that applies a personal level as well as professionally. Um, and it goes back to the self-belief thing. You just have to, you know, when things don't work, you have to recognize it, but you have to keep pushing forward and not compromise on what it is that you truly want to do this for. Um, and I think that's been, been been a key lesson I've learned.
0: Wonderful. And just finally then, what is your, what's your long-term vision for One Green Planet and yourself?
1: Well, I'll try to simplify this. So <laughs> I think, I think um, it's, if I could boil it down, I think, to one thing, it's animal agriculture is the single most destructive industry on the planet. Um, what I'd really love to see is to, within my lifetime, to see this industry be largely obsolete or at least in significant decline. Um, and I've realized in the last three years that I'm not alone in that thinking and there's, there's really talented, brilliant people working towards the same goal. Um, I want to empower people to change their daily habits and to be a catalyst for this new industry that's rising with better products, Um, and I think that's the way we're going to bring about change. And I want us, I want One Green Planet to be the media platform that helps create this future where, you know, making a better, more humane or sustainable choice or vegan choice is the easiest and the most economically viable one. I want to help make it the default, and I want us to be um, that catalyst to make that happen. And, And that's really my personal as well as really professional goal with One Green Planet.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I'm feeling very inspired and uplifted by this interview. Thank you so much, for, Neil. You've been very generous in sharing your insights. And I think a lot of people listening are going to uh, yeah be equally inspired. So thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for
1: joining me. You're most welcome. Thanks a lot.
0: So that was Neil Zacharias from One Green Planet. You can find out more at onegreenplanet.org. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Brazilian footwear company Insector Shoes was featured on BBC News for its innovative approach to ethical and sustainable fashion. In a country that's one of the top producers of leather, Insector's owner Barbara Matavi takes beautiful, colourful vintage dresses and recycled plastic bottles, cuts up the material and turns them into one-of-a-kind shoes. One dress, for example, typically yields just five pairs of shoes, so we're talking exclusive here. Matavi uses the term eco-sexy to describe the brand, saying that while it's important to have an ethical, sustainable product, it also has to be beautiful and have sex appeal. The business is still only in its third year, yet it's already branching out to sell into North America and Europe. The shoes are priced similar to leather ones and Matavi says part of the brand's mission is to give talks in schools and other places highlighting the toxicity, environmental degradation and animal welfare issues related to leather. It's fantastic to see this innovation and they really do have some beautiful designs. This is upcycling at its finest in all ways. So do check them out on their website Insector Shoes. Retail sales of plant-based foods and drinks in the US grew 3.4% to $4.9 billion to 12 June 2016, according to research by Spins, reports Food Navigator. Refrigerated non-dairy milks, particularly nut milks, showed the strongest growth, accounting for 67% of sales, followed by shelf-stable non-dairy drinks at 17% and frozen meat alternatives at 10%. Refrigerated meat alternatives, non-dairy cheeses and tofu each accounted for around 2% of sales. Spin's strategic alliance manager Cora Lazarski revealed that plant-based foods are growing the fastest in the natural channel, up 10.7% to $207 million to 12 June 2016, followed by the Speciality Channel up 7.5% to $90 million. And the multi-outlet conventional channel up 3.4% to a whopping $4.6 billion. Now, to put this into perspective, growth for the total market of groceries and drinks was just 1.7%. So it's great to see the plant-based food sector continuing to grow. Several developments are taking place in the vegan burger world. Firstly, the Big Macinnes burger was a major hit at the annual Ribfest in London, Ontario in Canada, reports the London Free Press. Based on the McDonald's Big Mac, it's the brainchild of entrepreneur James McInnes, founder of Globally Local, which sells organic and locally sourced produce along with vegan products including meat, dairy and egg alternatives. Secondly, vegan triplets in Washington, D.C. have been impressing the locals in three of their pop-up outlets, reports DCist. Roni, Rone T, and Roneka Jacobs have gone all out with pudding vegan front and centre of their brand, Three Twisted Vegans. <laughs> Fabulous name. DCist reporter Rachel Saden said their OG burger was easily the closest experience I've come to having meat in many years. In fact, if I'd eaten it blindfolded and someone told me that it was a Big Mac, I probably would have believed them. That's a fantastic endorsement. And thirdly, renowned chef and restaurateur David Chang has added Impossible Foods vegan burger, the one that bleeds, to the menu at his Momofuku Nishi restaurant in Chelsea, New York, reports NY Eater. You may remember in our previous episode of Vegan Business Talk, I reported that Chang had praised the plant-based burger on his social media, proclaiming it to be the future of food and even more delicious than its animal-based counterparts. So it's all happening on the burger front. And this is so good because it really breaks down the myths about vegan eating. I know there's a large part of the plant-based lifestyle that's focused on health, but we have to acknowledge that a large part of the population love their burger and chips or fries, as they say in the US. So if we can give them delicious vegan alternatives, then bring it on. Biotech firm New Wave Foods is developing a kinder and more sustainable alternative to shrimp, made from algae. And the product is so similar to actual shrimp that Google's chef has pledged to switch to it in the first few months of 2017, reports Wired. The shrimp industry has proved to be bad for people, animals and planet. Shrimp farms destroyed 38% of the world's mangrove forests, while human trafficking and slavery have found to be at the heart of shrimp farming and the seafood industry in general. A mixture of plant proteins and algae, the creation of New Wave's product involves no fishing, no nets, no fish, no mangroves, no slavery and of course no shrimp. Now, one of the key challenges the company faces is convincing people to try the algae, which many people think of as pond scum. (laughs) I'm really loving these innovative solutions. We have to leave our oceans alone and stop fishing. And this really is a fantastic development and great that, you know, a major company like Google is so open minded to taking these products on board. Now this week, the absolutely fabulous movie premiered here in Sydney, Australia, where I'm based, and I went to see it and I absolutely loved it. I love Patsy and Adina and it was real laugh out loud stuff. What's that got to do with vegan business news, you might be asking? Well, a woman in Wales in the UK has opened a vegan market and called it absolutely fabulous. (laughs) I love this. Uh, Sue Thomas brought together around 30 stalls featuring pizza, mac and cheese, ice cream, milkshakes, donuts, brownies, and lots of lots of other goodies at the Sunday market at Plainswood Community Hall in Cardiff on the 31st of July, reports Wales Online. Thomas told the website, if I said come along to my fair and I didn't tell you it was vegan, you wouldn't know. That's the beauty of it. Now, well done, Sue. Again, this is how we entice people and blow their minds and their taste buds with delicious veganized alternatives to foods they know and love. So this is an idea that is really, wait for it, absolutely fabulous. <laughs> Finally, I'm so excited to announce that this podcast, Vegan Business Talk, has been nominated for a Veg News Magazine Veggie Award. I'm really honoured because there are so many amazing contenders in the category of favourite podcast, including some wonderful, long-standing and popular vegan and animal advocacy podcasts. I'm thrilled to be included and I'd like to give a huge thanks to all my guests to date who really make the show what it is. If you'd like to vote in the awards, and it's definitely worth it because there are prizes available, head over to vegnews.com. Alternatively, you can find a direct link to the awards voting on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving in a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now.